You're listening to the Tranquility Tribe podcast, an empowering space for all parents from conception to childhood. In this podcast, you'll explore your birth options, hear from experts in the field, learn to embrace self-indulgence, and prepare yourself for parenthood with Haiti. She's a coffee connoisseur, lover of deep belly laughs, a big-time tailgater, and your neighborhood birth junkie. From Mississippi to Massachusetts and everywhere in between, here's your host, Hee. Hello, villagers. Today, you're listening to episode number 11 of the Tranquility Tribe podcast. Today, we are diving into the pelvic floor even more with Sarah Reardon, or as the social media world knows her, the Vagina Whisperer. Sarah practices in New Orleans, one of my favorite places ever, and has a way of bringing humor to sensitive topics like pelvic health, healing after birth, pain during sex. She's the mother of two little boys, ages one and two, who are absolutely adorable. She keeps it real about the postpartum life and motherhood while educating women all over the nation. I am so, so excited to share all of her knowledge and humor with you today. Sarah, welcome to the Tranquility Tribe podcast. Thank you, Hehe. I'm so excited to do this with you. So I must say, I absolutely love following you on Instagram. I have really been getting knee deep into your blog too, which is filled with amazing information and education. I find myself you know, going from blog to blog to blog, just like binge blogging like you would Netflix. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became to be uh, this vagina whisperer? I will. And I wish it was a super sexy, exciting story, <laughs> but it's pretty normal. Um, I went to graduate school in St. Louis for physical therapy. And I thought I was going to be a physical therapist for um, athletes and come back home to New Orleans and practice here. And during that time, I had a professor who was interested in women's health. And so she and I just really connected and I decided to do a clinical rotation in women's health. And that was when I um, kind of took a leap of faith. I moved to Michigan for three months and lived in Ann Arbor and didn't know anyone and just did um, some clinical work in at the hospital. And I saw my first vagina <laughs> and I was a deer in headlights. <laughs> And then I just really fell in love with the patients. I think it's being able to help women and men with something that they find embarrassing, but it's actually just totally normal bodily function, but we're not talking about it. And they're so grateful to just have help for that. And I think I really love um, and feel honored to be a support person for them. So after grad school, I... It was right after Katrina, so New Orleans was not in a place where I felt comfortable moving back. The hospitals were working out of trailers, and it was, you know, not even a year after. So I moved to Austin in Texas and um, worked at a clinic that just did pelvic health for men and women and started immediately after grad school, and that was almost 12 years ago. And I've only done this for the length of my career. The Vagina Whisper name kind of came about because my friends in the Northeast, we would get together every 4th of July, and I would end up, um, we would go to one of their houses and, um, you know, hang out at the pool, and I would end up hanging out with all 
of their moms in the hot tub with these 50 and 60 year old women. And they were asking me about like bladder leakage and prolapse and pain with sex. And so they were just like, oh my gosh, Sarah's like the vagina whisperer. So they really came up with it and then it just kind of stuck. So that's where we are today. That is so funny. Oh my goodness. I love that ending. So that's not a sexy ending, but that's a fun ending. I really <laughs> like that story. That's awesome. Oh, and you mentioned Hurricane Katrina. I uh, I remember Hurricane Katrina. I yeah, I was in high school and I live, you know, around two hours uh, north of New Orleans. So we were affected big time. Right. And you mentioned, you know, trust in there that people have to really trust you and you feel honored to be on this, um, you know, this pelvic floor journey with them. Me too. I also, I think it has to do with, um, you know, we're willing to talk about something that's pretty tough to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I find that, I don't know the it, they find um, comfort in my confidence. So when I say things and I, you know, for me it's just so kind of common sense. Like, okay, you want to have this baby? Here are the things you can do to to help your pelvic floor. And their eyes light up, and they're like, "Wow, this is like whoa!" It kind of takes that awkward like this is a taboo subject out of it. You you know. Totally. I totally agree with you, Hehe. And I think that because you're comfortable and casual and confident about um, your services and the information you're providing, that that's disarming for them. And they're like, okay, we're just working on a vagina like we're working on an ankle or a knee. It's just another part of the body. And, you know, it's also that I think if you have a certain personality that's um, very relaxing for them or um, they can relate to. I think it just allows them to kind of open up even more. I'm sure you hear, hear this all the time. People are like, I've never told anyone this before, yeah. or, you know, I've only told my friend or my husband or partner doesn't even know. So that to be that person for them is really special. And um, I just really, I really try to kind of embrace that and, and, and just support them as much as I can during, you know, pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum, and just even if you are not pregnant or an expecting mom, um, anybody with a vagina really is <laughs> can be helped. So, Yeah, no, exactly. I think, um, yeah, I was just thinking that I kind of have organically become um, this doula that um, birthing parents come to when they have had a, a first-time traumatic birth or they have a lot of anxiety. Um, yeah, these are kind of, it's just kind of organically happened, I think, and I, I do. I think it has a lot to do with, I'm willing to talk about anything. If it is bothering you, let's chat. You know, text me, call me, email me. I'm happy to support you. Um, and you just don't find that, especially around your vagina. I mean, you have a gynecologist, and that's what that person is for. But, you know, you can't always get into your gynecologist, or sometimes that gynecologist they're your doctor, but that's not somebody that you always like open up to, right? Like, right. I don't, I don't spill the beans to my doctor, you know, and right. some people do and you really need to, but that's not my place. And I know for a lot of people, it's not their place, right? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, and we see those practitioners once a year, maybe now it's sometimes every three years, if you don't, you know, they're reducing how frequently you're getting your pap smear. So it's just not that, um, just not that familiar of a relationship sometimes. So 
again, I feel super honored. I love my field. I feel so fortunate. I found it right out of grad school. And then I think the journey of becoming a mother and being a postpartum um, or being pregnant and then becoming a postpartum mom, I think has just helped me relate to my clients so much more. I used to be like, oh, you should walk 30 minutes a day and you should do this. And then I got pregnant and I was like, fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even get off my couch, you know, or like brush my teeth today. <laughs> so it just helped me really relate to what they were experiencing and tailor, you know, my expectations and my, um, my treatment for them. So it's been a great journey. Yeah. And even after your kids get here, I mean, that time goes even, you know, faster and you have so much so much less of it, right? Right, so totally. What is Absolutely. 30 minutes not spent walking right. up? Right. Okay. I know, right. After the kids get here. So I, uh, I've always heard these mixed reviews on maternity belts. And side note for our followers, if you did not know, maternity belts are used prenatally and belly bands are for the postpartum period. So some people love them and some people don't. And some practitioners recommend them and some don't. And I know you're a big supporter of, of maternity belts and I'm gonna link a blog that you have um, and you call it you know, being proactive during pregnancy in preparation for your birth. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Because I think being proactive during pregnancy is a huge topic on probably most birthing parents' minds. For sure. So I, um, with respect to maternity supports, I do recommend one during the pregnancy period, only because I, I feel like most women, we've got relaxant in our bodies, we've got a high amount of progesterone, our joints are getting more lax, and we've got this expanding abdomen, and we don't necessarily have the, the abdominal or back support to make that a comfortable process. So I like them because I do think it helps make women more comfortable. I, um, I don't Think that pain is a normal part of pregnancy. I think I'm, I meet women who are like, my pregnancy was amazing. Mine was not, <laughs> either of mine. So I think what can we do to help that make that transition or that process more comfortable for someone versus saying, you just have to deal with this. I think that that's bullshit. The other thing is that I want women to stay active. Um, the research shows that women who are more active during their pregnancy have better um, birth experiences. They have faster labors. So if I can provide them some supports to keep them walking, to keep them moving, to keep them working, then I want to be able to do that versus they feel like they can't do anything. So that's my philosophy behind that. I love it so much. Um, I often recommend them as well, um, but it, it generally does take one of my clients saying like, I'm having pain here. I'm, I'm having pain here for me um, to say like, oh, maybe a, a maternity belt would help you. Um, so I don't know, maybe it should just be something that all, all pregnant people wear, you know? Like if you're pregnant, you should know in the last couple months of your pregnancy, wear a maternity belt, it'll help. Right. Then you might not ever experience that pain, right? That's a thought. Right. That's the thought for me, exactly, is that maybe there is something preventative that you can do. There are some, you know, the, I mean, the thing is every physical therapist practices differently. So I respect the way that other people practice. This is just my philosophy. Uh, and there's not a ton of research on this either. So we use a lot of our clinical experience to kind of guide the way that we're treating patients. The other thing is that um, I'm also not the only person that I recommend that they see during pregnancy. So I 
love to have a collaborative team of chiropractors, acupuncturists, a doula, a massage therapist. So that's all really important to me is to have a support team versus, you know, I'm just the only one seeing them. And sometimes that's the case. But I know some chiropractors have been like, oh, if you have this band on, you kind of limit the room for the baby. And that's why I think it's important to have all of just these different eyes and um, expertise working with the patient for their best outcomes. That's awesome. You know, one of the things that um, I focus on is, is the intentional putting together of your birth team. So I have partnered with all those people that you just named, those team members. I've partnered um, with all of them so that my clients don't have to go far. So when you hire me, you, you kind of have these spider webs out to all of these people um, that exactly fingertips. Yeah. And they, you know, our, our goal is to have that person say to us, my pregnancy was awesome. Like we want, we want your friend that said like, that was awesome. My pregnancy was, you know, was great. So more mixed reviews Perineum massages as a way to prepare for birth. Yay or nay? I'm totally a yay on this. However, the research is mixed. So. Well, <laughs> that's um, exactly what I say. I love yes. it. So the research is mixed. So during, you know, the thing is, is that there's no harm from it. So you can do perineal massage. I typically start about 34 to 35 weeks. I know some therapists or you know, birth practitioners start later, but I delivered at 37 weeks and 38 weeks. So I know that people may go earlier or that I may not see them again. So um, around that 34, 35 week time frame, I start teaching them how to do it. Um, I have them do it on themselves. I have their partners do it. Um, I had my husband do it on me and he and I were like, mm, we don't really like this. And so we were like, nah, I'll do it by myself, you know? <laughs> so, it kind of is one of those things that whatever works for you. Um, but I do feel like it helps a woman kind of prepare the tissue vaginally, especially if they have had a previous delivery with a tear or an episiotomy when there could be scar tissue in the area. I think it helps to desensitize the tissues. Um, so they kind of get used to what some of the sensations may be during the childbirth experience. And then um, during that perineal preparation phase, I also teach them how to bear down properly. So instead of like holding their breath when they push, or if there's someone coaching them in the, the delivery room, I teach them how to really kind of gently open up their, their vagina and perineum versus some women are contracting, which would be the opposite of what we want to do. Yeah, so while I'm baby up. Exactly. So I teach them kind of the whole process is not just the massage, but getting a mirror out, check out your vagina. This is what it should look like when you gently bear down and teaching them to do that. So it's all part of a kind of the whole educational process. Now, the, the research does state that during delivery, perineal massage is not beneficial. So um, some nurses or, or support, labor support individuals do it, but you know, I typically say it's something that would be great before, but during you don't necessarily need to have it. Cool. I love, um, I love that, that you aren't only focused on, um, you know, whether it helps with tearing or whatever, because that's, that's mostly how it gets brought up in conversation is like, oh, do you think this would help, you know, it, me tear less? Or do you think this would prevent me tearing? And my answer is always like, it doesn't hurt, but the, the reviews are mixed, you know, scientifically. But my personal opinion is that 
you know, it just gets you in touch with your vagina down there and big things are about to happen down there. So you, you kind of want to be connected, right? To your gal downstairs. Like you kind of want to be her friend. You want to know what's going on with her. So, you know, I start mentioning it between probably 32, 34 weeks. I find that people generally need to warm up to it if they haven't brought it up by then. Um, yeah. And, and then from there, it's your choice whether you want to do it or not. But I always, I always say, yeah, go for it. And you might hate it. Yeah. So it might be a thing that you give it a try and you hate it and that's it. You gave it a go and you didn't like it. Wasn't your thing. That's, that's totally fine. Um, right. You know? Yeah. Right. It doesn't hurt. I think it, I think it is something to give it a go if you want, but don't have too high expectations, I guess. Um, yeah, I to- yeah, I you said it perfectly. I think it does help you kind of get in touch with the girl down there and it um it's not going to harm you. Um but again, I kind of do it all like you know, the first time if you do use a mirror during your delivery, then I'm like that's probably not the best time to see your vagina for the first time. For the time. first time, right? It is scary, okay? So Let's do it now. And, and the other thing is I have women come in to see me and I do perineal preparation for them. So I will do it for them if it's something they don't feel comfortable doing at home. And I'll kind of work with them as these are what the sensations should feel like. And, you know, so it's, um, I think it can be really therapeutic. I totally agree with you. That is, that is amazing. So in my doula practice, I feel like this is something that um, I find myself talking so much about um, with my clients, this like preventative care, um, but for, for a lot of things. So how can I prevent tearing? How can I prevent stretch marks? How can I prevent mastitis? How can I prevent, you know, being engorged? How can I prevent so much stuff? Um, but so we're beginning to see these shifts and changes in the birth world. And one of those shifts is that birthing people are beginning to advocate for themselves and to, to really ask for education and facts about topics and like scientifically, like what does the science say? And one of the topics that people are finding to be helpful, but, um, but also really important is preventative care for before when the baby comes, because birth is essentially you know, trauma for your, your pelvic floor, which I hate that word. And I wish there was a better word, but your pelvic floor does take a lot of wear and tear while you're growing this tiny human, you know, it was designed that way. So it's meant to happen. You will heal for sure. Um, but I think, I think we're finding that people who are, you know, challenging this question of, is there more we can do in terms of preparing our bodies uh, to birth a baby? And they're starting to find these other these other answers. So this leads me to my next question is, do you have any tips for the birth itself? For sure. It's funny because, um, I mean, the number one thing I tell people is like, get a doula. (laughs) (laughs) And and the reason for that is I think that, I mean, I am in the maternal health care field. I felt like I knew what information, the information that was out there, but I still felt like I needed a support person. I mean, I needed somebody in my corner to help me make decisions to, you know, you're in this zone when you are um, laboring and I wanted someone to help me almost pretty much to talk me off the ledge, but also to help me make decisions to, I mean, I remember I knew exactly what I wanted. And then I would still look to my doula and be like, is this okay? And, you know, just because she was in the right state of mind. And so I think if having a support person who is not your partner um, or even a close family member, um, I think having a designated support person is super important. 
and the research shows you have better birth outcomes, you're more likely to have a less traumatic birth experience, um, less likely to have a C-section, less likely to have a baby who ends up in the NICU. So it's nothing but positives, right? And to me, it's an investment in my healthcare. And I had a physician who at 22 weeks, I said, what do you think about a doula? And they were like, I kind of feel like they get in the way. And I was like, well, I'm switching doctors. And I did. And I was so fortunate to find a physician at halfway through my pregnancy who would take me on and had a great relationship with doulas. And so that's where I really started thinking, like, I have to advocate for myself. And, um, and I think it's, you know, it's tricky, he, he, when we do these podcasts, because part of the, the thing is that we're trying to educate and empower women and, and, and partners, but it's kind of scary if you're uninitiated. They're like, wait, what? Nobody talks about what's going on down there and nobody's going to school you on like what's about to happen with your vag. And then you hear it and you're like, that's fucking terrifying. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> but part of it is bringing this stuff to light and they're like, okay, I need to have pad sickles at the end. I need to have witch hazel. I need to have a sitz bath. So, um, but to get back to your question, things that you can actually um, do to prepare outside of getting a doula is to move. We know that walking is, um, or movement is super helpful during the labor process, um, being upright, so not just sitting, but so that gravity can really help the baby descend and put pressure on the cervix, um, I think will help with the dilation process. Movement, so once you are maybe in bed, um, turning, you know, rotating positions every 15 minutes, I mean- Peanut balls. Peanut balls are amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I recently was in a, a you know, a, a delivery room with someone and the nurse was like, peanut balls don't do anything. And I was like, actually the research they says do. differently. Yep. And she was like, I turn the patient every hour. And I was like, actually research says it should be more frequently than that. So I think that having a doula who can be your support person to assist with those things is essential. Um, that later you get your epidural, the more likely you're to progress. So waiting, some hospital nails are not even allowing the epidural to, to be administered until after five centimeters. So that's awesome. Um, you know, and then also learning how to push properly, you know, using your breath, only pushing during contractions, um, using, you know, with regards to perineal tearing, using warm compresses on the perineum, sometimes having someone put pressure on the perineum as the baby's crowning, changing positions during delivery, sideline has been shown to, you know, decrease the risk of tearing. Um, so just these little factoids that it's a lot to take in, but if you have a support person who can advocate for you and help you through that process, I think it's huge. So um, lots, to, lots that can be done, um, lots of things. It's not just something where we just kind of have to sit back and be the, the passive patient. I love it. I am. Um, people are always super shocked when they kind of hear what my ideal birth is. And it always includes having a doula and they're like, what? what? You are a doula. Like you don't need a doula. And I was like, what do you think that your doctor doctors himself? Do you think that your counselor counsels themselves? Does your dentist work on their own teeth? Like what? I do need a doula. Um, yeah, that's awesome. You said so much in there that I, I just like jotted down a, a lot of quick notes, we sometimes are educated nurses, you know, sometimes we are that person that, that shows that nurse, it doesn't have to be like this. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I kind of find that, 
that nurses, not so much super young nurses, actually, um, you know, really young, new nurses are coming with this, this really pivotal, you know, it's a pivotal medical kind of approach. It's really nice. I like it. But, but the older doulas sometimes need a little nudge and to say like, actually, um, you know, I just read this article and it's a new, it's new research and here's what it says. We should really be flipping women every 15 to 20 to 30 minutes, you know, like. Right. Right. How often, how, what is your thought on how often to flip? I mean, to, I shouldn't say flip like a pancake. (laughs) How often to reposition someone during labor? Yeah. So I, I do two things. So if I, if I see that something is really, really working well, um, I'll just kind of check in at the 15 minute mark. Um, and if it goes for another 15 minutes, that's good. And if it's working well, then I really kind of encourage um, some movement at the 30 minute mark, just something quick. Even if we do one other position for 10 minutes and then we get back in that position, I just think the simple, like let's, so let's just say like squatting on the bed, it works for 30 minutes. I had checked in at 15. I'm really encouraging you to move. I say something like, at least let's go to the bathroom. You have to get down off the bed, walk to the toilet, squat on the toilet, sit down, get yourself back up, walk to the bed. You know, like your hips and your your legs, your belly's doing a lot of movement. And that might just be that little, that little millimeter or centimeter that your baby needs to really click in your pelvis. Um so sometimes it's tricky. Sometimes birthing parents are like, absolutely, heck yeah, I'm like so tired. I want to change positions. And that's that's great. But yeah, every 30 minutes, I'm really encouraging it. Um, and then if they're up for it, and, and some birthing parents are like totally rock stars and they just move the whole time. I have no idea how they have that much energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, every 15 minutes, if they're up for it, 30 minutes, I, uh, I really try and encourage them to move. That's awesome. That's awesome. I went to a, um, a conference this past week and there was a physical therapist who is, works um, a lot in the birth world. And, you know, we were just discussing some techniques about like how to position patients to help open up the sacrum if the baby's kind of quote unquote stuck in the pelvic outlet and putting pressure at the top of the pelvis or positioning on their side or um, you know, like using towels or something underneath their bottom to help the sacrum open up if they're on their back. So there's, there's just a lot of really cool things that I think, um, you know, support people in the birthing room can do, um, for women that we just don't even have any idea. And I agree with you. I think it's some of the younger, um, fresher medical professionals, residents and nurses who are like, okay, let's be collaborative and work together and learn. It's tricky when you've been in a field for a long time and you're like, I've been doing this forever but we would hope that medicine changes. We would hope that research, new research comes out. I mean, that's what we want. We don't want 30-year-old data driving what we are doing now. So I think that that's always important to stay open-minded. And what I'm doing now is probably way different than what I was doing 10 years ago. And that should be the, that should be the case, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I think staying current uh, is is like the top priority, right? Like you just want to be super current on everything that's coming out, whether it be good or bad, whether it be disproving or proving something, you want to know about it so that you can present it to your clients because it's really it's really just about educating them about what's out there so that they can make the choice. Totally. Um, so I, I love that you are so sideline pro because I have quickly 
um, started to love sidelining. I've seen a couple babies born now with zero tearing and it's pretty cool. Um, it's yeah. like really cool to see a baby come out and there be no tearing because I don't know. You just think like, how's a baby going to come through that, right? Yeah. Like, oh. So I delivered both of my babies in sideline and it was, I think just kind of the, the primal position I felt like was most comfortable. I, I was literally just like tossed on the bed and they, that's what position I landed in. But it was also like, what does my body say that it needs? And it just kind of fell into that position. And um, I had no tearing. Um, I also have really stretchy skin, so I think I just have good genetics, <laughs> but uh, I want to thank my mom for that, but um, <laughs> it does. I was like, oh, this kind of makes sense to me. You know, it kind of allows your pelvis to open up and yeah. the sacrum to open up, and um, so I, yeah, I agree that it was, uh, and, and you know, you're not, you don't have both legs hiked up really high and stretching that perineal tissue. It's like only one side, so it, you know, I think that, that it's, it's helpful, and, but again, it's such, you know, birth is such a different experience for everybody. So I can't research and show something, but I really am like, I think you have to kind of listen to your body and do what it's telling you to do as well. For sure. So what are some signs and symptoms that you might want to be aware of, or if they're like persistent and don't go away? Um, also like, what is persistent? What does that even mean? A few weeks, a few months, like give it a year and see what happens. Like what right. are you talking here? Right. So um, that's a great question. And you, so what you're kind of asking about is the postpartum period and what's like normal and what's not. You'll follow up, most women will follow up with their doctors at six weeks postpartum. There's a lot of research that's showing that over 40% of women aren't even attending those postpartum appointments, which is unfortunate, but it's hard. We've got babies, we've got work. It's hard to make those appointments. So um, I think one of the important things is I usually say three months is you know, when you're out of that fourth trimester, if symptoms are still occurring, I think you absolutely need to get additional support and see a therapist. Um, those could be urinary leakage. Um, those, some of those symptoms could be urinary leakage. It could be pressure or heaviness in your pelvis, which could be prolapse. Um, it could be um, painful intercourse. It could be tailbone pain around three months, we're kind of starting to get back to our normal activity. We're going back to work. We're getting out of the house more. We may be starting to exercise more frequently. And if symptoms are persisting, you know, that's where I think you definitely need to be going to see a therapist. I would wish that every woman would go see a therapist at six weeks postpartum um, because it's like we have just been through a marathon and then like a 50 yard sprint. And then just, I mean, it's, it's crazy what our bodies go through. And so just try to bounce back, I think is kind of naive. I think we really need support and education. And, you know, we want to be active. And how do you prevent things from happening? How do you, how can we coach women on what's going to make their diastasis worse or make prolapse worse or how to take your shit, your first shit postpartum? I mean, this is like <laughs> legit problems that nobody's telling us about. And I had a woman who was straining so hard during trying to poop that she popped four stitches in her C-section. And I'm like, that is so sad. And it's fun. not supposed to be like that. Oh no. Man. So yeah. it's just, I think if we could even get to them earlier in the hospital and then definitely by six weeks postpartum. Um, but I would say, I, I typically say by three months postpartum, your tissue's healing, your scar is healing. If anything's persistent, then go see a therapist. Yeah. I, um, 
you know, I'm a huge advocate that you actually need care before six weeks because holy cow, the amount of healing that happens in those first six weeks is really incredible. So like the first week I always am with my clients, I, I go to their house for the first postpartum um, in the first week that they come home and there's already been healing. There's already been changes. They already have questions. And I just always think to myself, what if you had to wait six weeks to ask someone this? You know, it would be, whoa, like you don't have anybody to ask these questions. So I actually wish that hospitals would send either doulas or nurses or midwives or somebody, some sort of support at the two-week mark. Um, you know, because your first week is going to be rocky and then you might kind of work those questions out. But by the second week, you generally have a lot of questions about your body, your baby, what's happening. Is this normal? You know, like, what can I expect? Um, so yeah, I think, I think care should start actually before six weeks. And I also wanted to note quickly that you don't have to have, you know, a, a, a vaginal birth for your pelvic floor to be affected by this. Just carrying your baby for nine plus months is enough. Sometimes I encounter parents who've had a cesarean birth and they always are shocked to find out that their pelvic floor may be affected too and that they are experiencing leakage or, um, you know, a hernia or anything like that. And they're just like, but I, I had a C-section. And I'm like, yeah, no, but you carried this baby for, for months and months. So what are your thoughts on cesarean births and the pelvic floor? Do their symptoms look the same? You know, will care look differently since they just had major surgery and they're like also trying to recover from that? Talk, talk to us about it. Perfect. Um, so to, to just take one step back before I answer that question, when you were mentioning seeing someone at two weeks, I, I agree with you because there's a lot happening in that initial um, postpartum period that we, we don't have any, you know, when it comes to healing or pooping or peeing. So even if I, I think it's great to, to start educating women before they even go into their delivery. So teaching them, this is how you poop. This is some postpartum tips for care, kind of taking advantage of that, that pregnancy prenatal period to, to start education. And some hospitals are having therapists go in when patients are in the hospital for those, you know, few days after delivery. And I think that's an optimal time to educate them if they're post-vaginal delivery or post-C-section. With regards to C-section, a lot, you are totally on point that a lot of the stretch and lengthening of the pelvic floor muscles occurs during pregnancy. So um, there is just an ad. I always say that pelvic floor muscles are like a hammock. So the more weight and pressure you have in that hammock, the lower the hammock's going to sink. And that's what happens during pregnancy. So you can have some weakness of the pelvic floor muscles, even if you have a cesarean section. And also women are often pushing. They have a really long second stage of labor and then end up with a C-section. So you're kind of experiencing a little bit of both of those processes, even though you, end, you have a C-section. There's also, with C-sections, there's scar tissue in the abdominal area that can cause um, tension, restriction that, you know, decreases blood flow to a healing vagina and, um, and just healing pelvic tissue. So I love to educate people on scar massage, promoting blood flow to the pelvic floor. Um, but there's definitely, I mean, I have women who have, they have painful intercourse, they have urinary leakage, they have prolapse, and um, they have a diastasis recti, and they have a, 
and they had a C-section. So there's definitely a lot of room for, I think, education and awareness that you could still be affected um, if you have a C-section. But I think, you know, if you have had a C-section, I think scar massage is probably one of the biggest things I promote women to do. Um, it's just, it's essential to healing that tissue and um, softening it because I, it, it, the amount of blood flow you have in the pelvic area is going to help healing and it, that's restricted with scar tissue. So the more you can massage that scar after it's healed, typically six weeks and after, that's the best. And I even tell them to start massaging it a couple inches above and below the scar if you're prior to six weeks. Just getting some your blood flow to the area to help with healing nerves and decreasing that numbness and pain and all that, that icky stuff that goes along with it. You know, it's the same thing as that perineum massage, like just getting connected with your scar. Cause it's a part of you. Now you need to be connected with it. You're going to need to like, you know, kind of care for it. Um, yeah, yeah. You bring up, you have just, you, I think you're really special, Hehe, because you have a great way of kind of connecting the mind and the body. And some of these things that women experience and leave physical um, kind of impairments on the body really do affect us emotionally and psychologically. So there are women who they feel like their cesarean section was traumatic, and then they haven't touched their scar in years, and they don't want to touch their scar. And so, like, how do we get them to start connecting? Because there's a lot of not just physical, but emotional and psychological healing that goes along with working on that tissue. So you're, you're totally right. So much. I blame society for that. And I'm out for vengeance. I <laughs> plan to change the way that we talk about women's bodies and we educate ourselves and we respect women's bodies and the, the things that we expect from women's bodies. Um, you know, I am out. I'm, I'm out on a mission to change this and I won't stop. But yeah, I think, I think a lot, so, so much is connected mentally. And I think that's kind of how, you know, I organically became this, um, this guru of, of headspace in the birth world. So yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thank you for your kind word. You're so sweet. Absolutely. And you were like, oh, I, you know, I work with some anxious moms. I'm like, those are like synonymous to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, we do. We talk a lot about postpartum depression, but I think postpartum anxiety is so prevalent. And I have experienced it with my, you know, after my first delivery, after my first son, I experience it now weaning off of um, breastfeeding. It's like, I didn't think that this was anxiety was going to be something that popped up. And I was like, whoa, I'm a year postpartum and I'm getting really anxious. And it's because my hormones are changing because I'm weaning off of, you know, um, nursing as often. So there's just so much that we go through, but I think anxiety is prevalent in society in general. And then definitely in this population of women that, um, you, you know, the work that you're doing is really, I think, speaking to that and, and helping, helping that process in those women. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I think, um, I think that a lot of women experience anxiety a lot in the first year. You have a lot of firsts in that first year. So like, pretty much everything is a first, right? It's just the first time you've had a kid. So every single thing you do with that child is brand new. Also, you're going to do like 
new life milestones, like the first time they go to daycare, the first time driving with a baby, the first time you Mm -hmm. bathe that baby, the first time your baby falls, walks, talks, you know, the first time your baby bites you. Oh my goodness. So many like great highs, but then like really lows where you're like, oh my God, I cannot believe you're acting like, who are you? You're not my child. (laughs) (laughs) So you have all these firsts in that, in that first year. And then I often find that first birthdays are hard. When your baby goes from like a baby and now you have to say they've been alive for one year, mm-hmm. that is so hard um, for a lot it's, of parents. So I it's think- hard, yeah. But it's also um, relieving. You, there's a little bit of like, holy shit, we made it. Like, <laughs> <it's> like <laughs> okay, I mean, there is a little bit like sigh of relief of like, we've made it, you know? And so you're sleeping a little more you know, um, the baby's a little more independent. You can like, if you are ready to start weaning, you feel like I've made this one year of nursing or pumping. And so there is a lot of, I think also like relief and achievement at that time. So it's, it's, um, but yes, it is, it's hard and and joyful in a lot of different ways as is having a parent. I mean, having a kid, it's, it's both of those kind of different experiences a lot of the time right all the feels like you just get all the emotions all the time all the feels so now that we've talked about um being proactive in your pregnancy the trauma that can occur what to look for a timeline of kind of when we can expect healing to occur what about once the baby gets here so what are your go-to things to tell parents to start supporting their pelvic floor muscles and all of that healing that needs to happen and the age-old question, to Kegel or not to Kegel? <laughs> um, yeah, that is the, uh, the question I get a lot. Um, so I think initially postpartum, the number one thing I tell women to do is to rest. There is just such this rush to get back to normal. Um, I think to feeling normal, to get back to getting back to our normal activity and our normal life. And the reality of it is this is our normal life. Now we are moms and we don't have as much time. We don't have as much um, just physical power as we used to. Um, So the first thing is rest, like respect the process. I know with my first one, I was going back so soon to try to work out and run errands and all this bullshit. And I'm like, I needed to be sitting on my ass, figuring out how to nurse, resting as much as I could, and just, just letting my body heal. Walking, I think is one of a great thing to do initially. Um, and then I actually love for women to do what's called diaphragmatic breathing, which is just kind of connecting with their breath, using their diaphragm to help kind of puff the belly, puff the ribs. It's really great for quieting your nervous system and also great for um, relaxing the tummy, relaxing the pelvic floor and promoting blood flow to the area. Um, after that, I would say after about the first four to six weeks of just kind of respecting that process, if um, someone feels ready to start doing more rigorous activity, again, I hope they would see a therapist, a physical therapist to help them transition back into the fitness world. But um, I do educate them on doing like functional Kegels. So I'm not a big person on, um, I do teach them like you need to start doing contractions, pelvic floor contractions in lying down or then progress to sitting, then to standing and kind of gradually take them into to a point where they can start doing pelvic floor contractions with their daily activities because this muscle has been deconditioned. We need to connect with it. Um, but I think one of the biggest things I tell, I tell women is like, if you're, you can't just Kegel while you drive to work in the car and then think that your pelvic floor muscles are going to work for you when you need them. You've got to teach them to turn on 
when they're supposed to, which is before you pick up your kid, before you um, lift something off the ground, um, before you put something overhead, when you're getting out of a chair, when you're getting out of the car. I mean, all of these times where we've got pressure in the tummy and the abdomen, and we need those muscles to support against that pressure. So before you cough, before you sneeze, and then teaching them how to turn it on before they jump. And, but it's a process. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a road. It's not like you can get those things going right away. Um, so yes, I do say to Kegel, but I also think people need to know how to Kegel properly to use their breath, to use their abdominals, to use the muscle during the day when they need it. Which all goes back to connecting with your body. And it is so, so wild how many women don't know how to Kegel properly. It's like a scary statistic. Yes. <laughs> like totally. A scary statistic. Um, you know, women who have been doing Kegels for years and then doing them wrong. Oh yes. my goodness. It like really rocks me to my core. It makes me gasp. Like, <gasps> oh my goodness, you know? Totally. And I'm like, take a mirror out, look at what your vagina is doing when you think you're doing a Kegel and it shouldn't be like bearing down or opening up. It should be like lifting and it's not like squeezing, just squeezing your butt. It's, 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 it's gentle. It's gentle. It's small. It's, it's um, Yes. And it's not, it's just, these are not huge muscles. They're not like quadricep muscles or butt muscles. So there is a finesse to it. And you're totally right. Research does show that a lot of women just aren't doing them properly. So I love being able to coach them and they're like, oh wait, I'm not doing the right thing. And like, actually you're doing the wrong thing. And that could be making your prolapse worse. And so getting that one-on-one guidance, I think is really important. It is. I think yeah, there's just so much education to be had um, had in pelvic floor and postpartum in general, and it's hilarious to hear you say respect the process because one of um, one of the things I call like a he heism mm-hmm. is something that I say like over and over and over and over again. Like if you ever ask anyone who worked with me in the birth world, they're like, "Oh my goodness, this is a he heism," and it is trust the process, respect your body. Um, and you kind of combined those and said, you know, um, respect the process. So I. Yeah, I just couldn't agree with you more. This, oh my goodness, has been the best, best, best discussion. I have one hundred questions for you, so we are going to have to do this again. We will, and I love learning from you as well. So this is great, and I—it's just great to be able to connect with other, um, other you know, individuals in the birth world and maternal health care who are like, we do. We want to change this story for women. We. There's a lot that like doesn't have to be. And I think the more that we educate and um, increase awareness and empower women and support them, I think that the better, um, the better the outcomes can be, you know, and not just even physically, but emotionally, psychologically, you know, um, socially, I think it's just, we need, we need more of what you're doing, which is just kind of spreading the word and saving vaginas and all that good stuff. So I'm with you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you in our tribe. This is amazing. I love, love, love all of the stuff that you have shared. Thank you so much for making this so much fun and super, super informative. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh my goodness. As always, villagers, find your tribe and love them hard. Did you know that you can join our online tribes? Our private Facebook group can be found by searching the Tranquility Tribe podcast on Facebook. And our Instagram tribe is Tranquility by Hee Hee. 
If you have a story you want to share with us, please reach out to us at tranquilitybyhehe at gmail.com. Until next time, villagers.